1 John chapter 5, you're already there. And let's do our topics or our points and questions again this evening. Let's pray. Lord, you're the ultimate example for us of love. And thank you for teaching us about love. Thank you for preaching the word to us. But I thank you more than anything for living that love towards us for showing us with your life and with your death and with your resurrection that you are love. I pray, Jesus, that we would, yes, receive you and yes, follow you, but that you would be our, our everything, the one that we look to, the one that we emulate. Lord, give us your strength to be like you, we pray. Amen. In the first five verses here, you'll notice that there's References to loving also, loving God and, and loving his children. Loving God there in verse 1. And if you look at verse 2, it talks about loving the children of God. So before we move on to other commandment keeping, let's revisit love. The command to love each other and the command to love God is ever before us. It's something that we're to live each and every day. It's not just something that we get ready for when we're studying a passage like this, but it's this command where we're to love one another. It's proof that you know God. It's proof that you're of God. Even when we're in a passage that isn't directly related to love, there are certain attitudes that keep us on the track of love, that keep us loving one another, like the fundamentals of loving one another. That's the bullseye, because for a Christian, sinning is when you miss the mark, and the bullseye is to love God and to love people. That's the center of the mark. That's what we're aiming for. I was watching my youngest ransom with his bow and arrow last week, and as I was watching him, we were trying to figure out why he was off to the left a little bit. And we're like, why does he keep going to the left? And he tried to adjust. The thing is, I don't know anything about archery, and neither does he. So I wasn't able to give him any principles for why he was going to one side and he'd try to adjust. There was a reason why he was missing to that side the whole time. He didn't know and I didn't know because there were some things that he didn't have correct. Now, if you knew what it would take for you to have a life of love, would you bring that attitude or that perspective into your life? If you knew that you were missing the mark, would you, would you care, first of all? And would you receive a tip from Jesus if it had to do with your attitude or your perspective, in order to help you be a more loving Christian, in order to help you love your brothers and your sisters. When we think of the love of God, it's often that he demonstrates his love for us by dying for our sins. But didn't we learn in the past few lessons that we're called to lay down our lives in little bits? We said in quarters. It's often not that big, grand gesture of love, but it's the seemingly small things that we do. It's the kindness, it's the patience, it's the long-suffering that we need to act out in our lives. What is it about Jesus? What are the things that he did what, when he was on this earth? What are his attitudes? Let me ask you this first question. Are you approachable? Isn't it true that Jesus approached people? Sometimes he went out and he just went after somebody. He, he sought them out. He was intentional about reaching out to them. I think about how he came past Matthew's tax collector booth and he pursued Matthew. He said, come and follow me. Who else did Jesus pursue? Are you with me? If you think in your mind, who did Jesus go after? I think about Zacchaeus. It says, 
comes right there to the tree. He says, I'm going to come to your house today. I think about the woman at the well. Jesus was, was one who was intentional about approaching people. That's true. But I also want you to think about the Gospels. Isn't it true that Jesus was also approachable? That the Scriptures are full of people who would seek Jesus. They would run right up to him. They'd press through a crowd to get to him. Isn't that true? The centurion came just running to Jesus. He was approachable. My servant is sick. The woman who had the issue of blood reaching out. Jesus was approachable. If I can just get to Jesus, I know that he'll meet my need. I know that he'll hear me. I know that he'll care. Nicodemus, even the paralytic, his friends brought him, but he was they were seeking Jesus on his behalf. He was seeking the Lord. Think of all the, the beggars and, and the blind who called out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Think about this. Jesus was approachable. The needy knew, they knew that he would be compassionate, that he would be kind, that he would be wise, that he would be full of love towards them. They knew what they were going to get when they approach Jesus. Do people know what they're going to get when they approach you? Or do they kind of wonder, are, are they going to be snobby? Are they going to be self-centered? Are they going to care about what I have to say? Be approachable. Be predictable, I'll even say. Make it so people know that you care for them, that you're going to listen to them. Do they know that you're going to build them up, not tear them down, that you're going to love them? and not despise them. Now think about this. Jesus, so approachable, to put it mildly. Was Jesus talented? <laughs> He's a miracle worker. Was he intelligent? They'd never heard anybody preach with this kind of authority. The word tells us, the prophets tell us, that he was nothing to behold in his appearance as far as being extraordinarily good looking, but as far as being Someone great, he certainly was. Now think about us. Sometimes we act like, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm something great. Jesus was exceptional in every way, but yet he was approachable. People knew that he cared about them, so they would seek him out. He, they knew in their time of need he would not slight them. He would not snob them. That's what Jesus modeled for us. It's just a little piece of love, but isn't it love? And people have been measuring each other up for thousands of years. And we can even do it here when we're gathered together. We're out amongst the world or we're at school or at the gym or at work or whatever. And what do people do? They, they look for their safe people, right? They look for the person that they know is going to care, right? And they go right past everybody else. They don't know how they're going to act. Part of loving people is, is being that person. It's like, I know that person's going to care about me. I know when I greet them, they're not going to look at me like, why are you talking to me? Or I don't care about you. Jesus, that's the kind of kindness. Now, I realize that you can't be best friends with everybody, but you can be kind. Show them that you care. Love, love is sometimes in the seemingly small things. I just saw this today that the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, has declared loneliness a detriment to many people's health. Loneliness. 
And they said, you know, I, I don't take a ton of stock in, in this, but it, they're saying it's physically, the fact that people are lonely is physically hurting them. It's worse than 15 cigarettes a day is what they say. You can't be everything, but you can be something. And a, have you heard this before, that a little love goes a long way? Have you heard that before? How about a lot of love? If a little love goes a long way, a lot of love will go that much further. Isn't it true? So don't let your fellow Christians be the lonely ones. Certainly, don't let the lost be lonely. And it's not something that just one or two of us can do. Be approachable. Approach people, yes. As we were reminded in the last chapter, beloved, like we love each other. Let us love one another because love is of God. It's not of us. Be like the Lord in the big ways, laying down your life, and in the small ways. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, verse 1, is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot also, everyone who loves him, who begot also loves him, who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Another question. Is the sanctification of commandment keeping in your life? When the Bible talks about commandment keeping, it's a sign of sanctification. How are you doing with the commandments of God? When we keep the commands of God, it's proof that he's purifying us. It's proof that he's setting us apart. It's, it's proof that he's making us more like him. Not saved by keeping commandments. Saved by grace through faith. But because we're saved, we can then keep the commandments of God. There's a lot about that in these first five verses. There's also a lot, I see it in verse 2 and verse 3, the commandment keeping. There's also a lot about belief or faith. I see it in verse 1, in verse 4, verse 5, faith or belief, saying this is where the victory comes from. This is where the overcoming happens, by faith. And then again, I see love in verses 1 and 2. So these are the themes that John has visited over and over again in the book. He's put them all together right here at the beginning of chapter 5. If you were to look back to chapter 2, he described all three commandment-keeping in verses 3 through 6, love in 7 through 8, then belief or faith in 18 through 27. And then in chapter 3, he talks about obedience, and then love, chapter 4, faith and love. So we're saved by believing in Jesus. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is when you're saved. But this is a sanctification section of the Bible for the most part where God has set you apart. We're not born of God by our love for him, but because we love God, or because we're, we have faith in him, we love God and, and we love people. And John is really now probing us as we read this book. Are you saved if you're not being sanctified? You judge yourself. Is the love of God growing in you? Can you measure you can measure that by how you treat your brothers and your sisters. So this sanctification of commandment keeping in your life. 
is it there? Look at verse 3. We'll focus here for a little while, the second half, where it says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Sometimes we think about the things that God tells us to do, and we think about the things that God tells us not to do, and we think in the flesh instead of in the spirit, and we say, oh man, I can't do that. What a drag. The commandments are high and they're holy, but the Bible says right here that they're not grievous, that they're not burdensome, that they're not a big bummer. Last Sunday, I talked about how difficult it was to love people, and it came across to some people as, but this is a real downer, man. As a Christian, you have to love people. You know what's worse? Not loving people. There's misery in that. It says right here in the Word of God that his commandments are not burdensome, that they're not a load, that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light, and that the way of living that loves your brother is so much better and so much less burdensome than the life that hates. But this has to do with all commandments of God, right? Because it says, and his commandments are not burdensome. How do you treat the law of God? How do you treat his commandments? What he tells you you should and shouldn't do. Do you see his commandments as burdensome? This would be point number three. And I'm going to give you a command with it. And there are many commands in the Bible. They're there for our protection. They're there because they're holy, because they please God, because they honor God. Here's a command, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. A clear command. But what is often the attitude about sexual immorality in our society today? Oh man, you're just having no fun at all if you're not being immoral. That if you're living a pure life set apart for God, you're, listen, you're getting a totally opposite message from the world and even some people in the church. If you're living a pure life for God, that's got to be a terrible burden. That's got to be miserable. And if you're living the kind of life that says, I'm going to have sex with anybody who have sex with me, that must be real freedom. The message of the world is exactly opposite of what God is telling us here in his word, that his commandments are not burdensome. It is not a burden to be sexually pure. In fact, it is burdensome to be sexually immoral. Yes, I believe the Bible, but when I compare the burden, the so-called burden of purity, and then I compare that to the burden of promiscuousness, I mean, do you see it? I think you do. I see it. I'm just so saddened when I see what people have saddled themselves with because they think that living a life of disobedience is going to be freedom, and they think that the commandments of God are going to be burdensome, but it's just the opposite. Now, some say, oh, sex with whoever is exciting, it's exhilarating, or oh, maybe for the day, maybe for the month, but is it burdensome to have syphilis? Is it burdensome to have gonorrhea or AIDS or herpes? And you say, this, that's just the disease burden of breaking God's commands. It's burdensome to live a life of disobedience. CDC, another one of those organizations where you're like, oh, I, I don't think they're underestimating these numbers. Between 2016 and 2020, they're measuring those four years. Listen to this. A 45% increase in gonorrhea. Syphilis increased 52% in those four years. 
Congenital syphilis, which is among newborns, increased 235%. Sound like freedom to you? In 2020, over half of reported cases were among people between the ages of 15 and 24. 43% of syphilis cases were among gay men, but one in five people in the U.S. has a sexually transmitted disease. And those are just the reported cases. So that's Russian roulette, isn't it? Like, oh, oh yeah. Is that freedom? No, that's burdensome. The commands of God are not burdensome. Don't listen to the narrative of the world. It just isn't talked about that much anymore, is it? It's like the consequences aren't even in the conversation. Used to talk about breaking God's commands, or even if they were, it was called morality, warning people. When is the last time you saw that statistical information about the consequences of sin, like posted next to a woman who was scantily clad? Here she is. Maybe she's the woman of your dreams, but there's a 50-something percent increase in syphilis. AIDS is more prevalent. Monkeypox is increasing. When is the last time that information was right there when they're pushing the agenda of homosexuality? Who's lying to you? God or the godless? And the supposed cause of, of of all this, according to the government and the behaviorist experts, is lack of education, lack of insurance, health insurance, lack of wealth. It's a sexually transmitted disease. That's not a lack of education. (laughs) It's not a lack of wealth. No, but you hear that it's, you find true happiness if you pursue your desires. That's what you hear from the world. God tells you the truth because he loves you. That to break his commands is a huge burden. It's a huge burden to be a single parent. It's a right choice. You know, initial sin, but then for some people, to keep that baby. But abortion, how burdensome is that? Conviction. God extends his mercy, but he, he wants us to see that his commands are not grievous. They're not burdensome. Something else, it just makes me, it does really make me sad. Attaching yourself physically, sexually before you're married to someone, they're not your spouse, that's burdensome. The devil says, you know, what delight you'll find. But did he tell you that you would be greatly diminished in your capacity to love? Because you weren't designed for that. It seems glamorous. I hope you don't believe the ridiculous, this isn't just for young people, <laughs> test drive theory. Have you heard that? Like, well, you know, before I buy a car, I mean, I test drive a lot of different cars, and then I pick which car I like the best. Why wouldn't I do that, that for marriage? Well, how many of us still have our first car as our daily driver? You've been comparing, like, a wife or a husband to purchasing a vehicle? What do you do when you're, you're, you don't like your car anymore? You trade it in for a better model, right? Isn't that the way marriage is working these days? You trade it in for a better model. Or you get desperate and you buy yourself a beater, right? (laughs) Because you don't have the money, right? Because they've treated people like they're just possessions. 
And those who are promiscuous before marriage just have this difficulty bonding. I just liken it to like worn out tape. Have you ever used tape and then you try to use it again, it just gets weaker and weaker. You gotta, they think, oh, you know, once I say I do, I'm going to be able to love and bond. I'm going to have faithfulness. It just doesn't stick very well. And I think part of the reason we talk about this is we want people to have hope. And we know they can have healing through Christ. And we know that he extends mercy. But on this side of it, will we wake up to the truth? Will you share it with people if you've lived it? Or even in God's word, like, don't put yourself through this. God's commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous. Do you know what burdensome is? It's to live for your flesh and then find out that it left you with nothing. That's what's burdensome. So don't fall for that lie of like your immediate happiness is of the utmost importance. I mean, look at the most wealthy and beautiful people. How long do they stay married? It's like common sense, right? Do you really believe that there's joy behind their smiles? Oh yeah, we do. Look how happy they are. And, uh, and then they come out after the fact and talk about their depression and their substance abuse and their suicidal thoughts. Commandments are not burdensome. They're truth, and the truth will set you free. Beware. I thought of this psalm, and God willing, we'll sing it at the close. It says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. That's the truth. Do you see the commandments of God as grievous, or do you see them as freedom. That's what we're, what we're presented in the Word of God. Now look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. When you read this verse, at first, what did you think of? What did you think it was talking about? I thought when I first read it, this is talking about Jesus being born as a baby because so much of 1 John has refuted the Gnostics who said that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. So when it said by water and by blood, I'm thinking he's refuting them once again because they said Jesus really didn't come in person. He just came in the spirit. This is showing Jesus took on flesh. He was born of a woman. He was the, the water of birth, the blood of birth a literal childbirth, that's what it's talking about. It did come to my mind that when Jesus was on the cross, they pierced his side with the sword. His, his body was there, and they pierced his side after he had died, and blood and water flowed. That came to my mind. Um, and it turns out that there are some that think it refers to that. Now, still others say that the water is the spirit, and the blood represents the death of Jesus. Some people say the water represents the baptism of Jesus, like at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and then the blood represents his death towards the end of his earthly ministry. I'm still not sure. My, I'm still back to my first initial. Like I think this is saying Jesus came in the flesh, the incarnate Christ. Um, any of the interpretations are consistent with the rest of the scriptures, but it, it could mean any of those will argue about it later if you want to, since I don't have a great argument. Verse 7, For there are three that bear witness in heaven. So there's three witnesses here, 
and there'll be three witnesses in the next verse. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. I ask you, last of all, which witnesses will you believe? This is a pretty great line of witness, witnesses, isn't it? This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 13, 1. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. If I'm going to believe some witnesses, these are the witnesses I want to believe. The Father, the Word. What's the last one? The Spirit, right? Who's better than that? And then look what it says on earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. Are there other witnesses? Are there people that are telling you and me, God is not real. God doesn't love because he's not real. He, he's, he didn't make a way to save you. These commandments of so-called religion, they're just a burden to you. There is no life after death. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There are other witnesses who are speaking to you. It's not the Father. It's certainly not the Word. It's certainly not the Spirit. But they're speaking into our lives, trying to get us to believe their witness. Who is the credible witness, is what I ask you. Who is believable? Megan Rapino, soccer player, I guess she retired. She was playing, I guess it was, was going to be her last game or the finals. And this is what she said because she got injured very beginning of the game. She said, I'm not a religious person or anything, but if there's a, there was a God, like, this is proof that there isn't. Rapino said during the post-game interview, this is bleeped up. It's just bleeped up. Six minutes in, and I eat my Achilles. So because she got injured in a soccer game, there's no God? God's extending his mercy to every one of us, including her. And saying, you know, so God's here to make sure nothing bad happens to me? Did, did God give you every bit of talent that you have so that you could be a professional athlete? Did God give you your, your wealth and your mind and your breath? He's given you so much. And this is proof. If something bad happened to me, it's proof that there's, just, there's no God. There are other witnesses speaking to you. And this really makes it clear to me, who am I going to believe? There's really only two choices, right? Am, am I going to believe the scoffer or am I going to believe the spirit? Am I going to believe the naysayer who's out for their own gain and has their own agenda or am I going to believe Jesus, the sacrificial lamb? Look at the witnesses before us. One of them is the Father, a witness in heaven. He said from heaven when Jesus was baptized, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is Jesus, my son, and he is doing my will. I'm pleased with him. The word is the next witness, isn't it? Jesus is the word made flesh, and he's witnessing to me and he's witnessing to you, just like he did to Thomas. In that upper room after his resurrection, Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see him. And Jesus said, come and touch my hands. Put your fingers right in the spot where the nail went in my hands. I'm, Jesus ate something. He said, ghosts don't eat. I'm going to believe the witness of the Father. I'm going to believe the witness of Jesus. These are the witnesses. Then we have the Spirit being a witness both in heaven and on earth. Right now, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is bearing witness to you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
He's speaking to you. You're a spiritual being, and he is pulling you, and he's drawing you in, he's testifying to you that there's truth, and it's found in Christ, that there's forgiveness, that there's mercy, and it's found in Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, the Bible says. He draws to Christ. John 15, 26, Jesus said this, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. To see the Holy Spirit pull people in, he pulled me in, he's pu- he pulled you in, or he's pulling you in right now. It's not just the doctrines of men, it's not just a book, it's, it's the power of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to you, the truth of Jesus. A witness in heaven and a witness on earth for your salvation for the grace that God has extended to you. And then we have also the water and the blood, the very birth of Jesus as a witness. We get to celebrate that, Emmanuel, God with us. Mary's pregnancy, announced by an angel, wrapping that Christ child in swaddling clothes, the witness of this is Jesus, God the Son, come in the flesh. The Holy Spirit bearing witness, the Father, the Word, the blood, and the water. All of these witnesses are, giving, are given to you and to me so that we can determine the truth. And I hope that this evening there's been some clarity, like the world is, is way over there, and the Lord and his truth are here, everlasting, giving me what I need from salvation to sanctification. Lord, I thank you for your law I choose to put it in my heart as your people. We look to it knowing that it protects us, knowing that it's good. It's so great to see the delight of life that we have as we follow you. It's it's not always easy. It's not that nothing bad happens to us, but knowing that we're walking in your ways. I pray for those who are scoffing, for those who are blaming I pray for their hearts to be softened, Lord. I pray that as we come in contact with them, that we would speak the good gospel, that we'd speak the everlasting gospel, that all preconceived notions would would go away and they would see you, Jesus, for who you are. Make us your salt and your light to this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.